Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. I'm Krista Carmen. And this is Murder Coaster. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we bring you the tale of a high school homecoming queen turned hippie who joined a murderous sex cult, carved an X into her forehead with a hot bobby pin, shaved her head bald, and screamed at the world that their children would rise against them. Often called the prettiest of the Manson family girls, she was only a teenager during the spree of crime and mayhem that many say ended the flower power movement of the 1960s. She's gone by many names. Lulu, Leslie Sue, Luella Alexandria, Leslie Marie Sangston, Leslie Owens. But most know her by her given name, Leslie Van Houten. And today, after 53 years behind bars, she now walks free. Ladies and gentlemen, the Leslie Van Houten story, part one, from homecoming queen to acid orgies. Let's begin. Leslie Louise Van Houten was born August 23rd, 1949 in Cedar Falls, Iowa, but her parents soon relocated to Altadena, California, a suburb of Los Angeles, where she would grow up. Her mother describes her as a feisty little child. Her parents were active in the village Presbyterian Church and well-known for their work with the Parent Teacher Association. Leslie sang in the choir and was a Girl Scout, as all-American and wholesome as a little girl could be. Her religious parents adopted two Korean orphans, a little boy and a little girl, that became Leslie's younger brother and sister. Though she was raised Presbyterian, she says religiously she was always drawn to, quote, the mysticism of Catholicism rather than the Protestant way, end quote. So I guess she was a bit of a rebel from the start. She was an average to above average student and in her freshman year was voted class treasurer. Leslie says she lived to dance, going to the Harmony Ballroom in Anaheim, where Dick Dale and the Dell Tunes would play wild surf rock in the early 60s. The kids going wild. Yeah, there's footage on YouTube of these dances, and you guys got to see this. It's exactly like that John Waters movie, Hairspray. I'll put a link in the show notes. And Oh, uh, that's fabulous. I need to see that. It's actually kind of like really punk rock in a way. It's like all these teenagers crammed into this little room. And the music is, is kicking, dude. Electric guitar, very surfy. And they're all just hopping around like it's, okay. it's, it's gnarly cool. yes. i love it well the harmony ballroom is also where richard berry wrote louis louis back in 1955 very cool leslie she loved dancing at the harmony ballroom so much she'd buy her shoes based on how well they could slide across a wooden floor leslie was beautiful smart and popular and was voted homecoming queen both her freshman and sophomore year of high school. But there was trouble at home, and her parents separated when she was 14, which her mother says hurt Leslie very much. She began to act out, and then she fell in love with teenage rebel without a cause, Bobby Mackey. By 15, she was smoking weed and dropping acid, and then her and boyfriend Mackey were off to the epicenter of the hippie scene, Hate Ashbury in San Francisco. Young rebel runaways in love. The summer of love was about to kick off and flower children were pouring into San Francisco. In January, 30,000 hippie freaks crowded into Golden Gate Park where Timothy Leary famously told them to turn on, tune in, drop out. The diggers were giving away free food and medical care and the Grateful Dead were playing free shows right in the street. 
And the Doors were playing legendary shows at the Matrix Club on Fillmore Street, and you could hear them on the radio everywhere. Jim Morrison howling to break on through to the other side. And Vietnam War protests were erupting everywhere in the city, uniting wayward youth in the cause of peace. You might think it was this cultural explosion that led young Leslie and Mackie to run away to the center of the flower power universe. But others say it was something else. Some claim it was because Leslie wasn't voted homecoming queen her junior year of high school. They say not being voted homecoming queen for a third year in a row made her so bitter and angry that she decided to run away and tow her rebel boyfriend along with her. Yikes, kind of narcissistic or crazy. I don't know. Regardless of why they ran away, the cold, hard streets of San Francisco were not what the two dreamers thought they were going to be. Even with the diggers giving away food and all the free love and flowers, it was a tough life living on the streets, and the two soon returned to the suburbs of Altadena. When Leslie returned home, she discovered she was pregnant. Her mother insisted she get an abortion which was illegal at the time. But the family had connections and a doctor was brought to the house to provide the procedure. In a disturbingly cruel form of punishment, Leslie's mother saved the tiny developing fetus and tissue and forced Leslie to bury it herself in the backyard. Yeah, that's so harsh. Poor girl. And Leslie would harbor intense anger and resentment towards her mother afterwards. And their relationship would never be the same. But she finished high school, graduating in 1967, and then started secretarial training school. Meanwhile, Mackie became a novitiate priest in the Self-Realization Fellowship, and Leslie soon followed. The Self-Realization Fellowship is pretty interesting, and I actually got into it a little bit back in my super spiritual hippie days. It's based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda, who wrote the book Autobiography of a Yogi, way back in 1946, a book that every wannabe spiritual hippie reads at some point in their lives. Even Elvis Presley was into this stuff for a while. And Steve Jobs, he stipulated in his will that the book be given away at his funeral. Paramahansa Yogananda was a fascinating guy, the first superstar guru. He hung out with everyone from Gandhi to botanist Luther Burbank and was even hosted at the White House by Calvin Coolidge in 1927. The book is really beautiful in that it's full of love and selflessness, but there is a lot of mystical craziness like sages walking through walls and levitating, stuff like that. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Huh. Sages walking through walls and levitating. Just sir. Regular old Thursday. <laughs> it was a regular Thursday for this guy. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty cool book, actually. I have never read it. And I actually borrowed it from someone years ago and like like held it hostage for years, never read it, and then finally felt bad and gave it back to them. So <laughs> I have a weird history with that book. All right. Well, Leslie joined the organization and became a novitiate nun, giving up both drugs and sex for a life of meditation and yoga. But we know Leslie. She loves her sex and drugs, and after eight months, she quits. But honestly, you know, eight months, it's, it's pretty impressive for a wild and free teenager with a wanderlust and an urge to party. Agreed. Yeah, and after this, she was anxious to, quote, try anything and went really wild, even answering sex partner ads in the Los Angeles free press. A new boyfriend even broke up with her because she'd become too kinky. She hooks up with a couple of hippie girls and heads back to the center of the flower power movement, Hate and Ashbury, San Fran Psycho. And this is where she would meet the love of her life, Bobby Boussier, playing music on the street. He was wearing a top hat and calling himself Sir Hocus. And she was beyond captivated. Bobby Boussoulet was a juvenile delinquent from a trailer park in Santa Barbara, turned mystical sorcerer and traveling minstrel. He'd been discovered by underground filmmaker Kenneth Anger, who had him play the devil himself in the film Lucifer Rising. 
Bobby had also been in all kinds of Kenneth Anger's acid-soaked black magic rituals, where he was worshipped on an altar as Satan, which may explain some of his arrogance. Yeah, right. Being worshipped as the most beautiful of all the angels by hipster Satanists might give someone an attitude. But Bobby, he had this cute baby face that girls, they just went crazy for it. And he was known as Cupid, among other aliases. Bobby and Leslie teamed up and crashed out in an abandoned, burnt-out bus with another girl. Leslie says Bobby had the most beautiful face of any man she'd ever seen, saying, He was an angel, and I told him I would love him forever. Telling him, I'll go anywhere in the world with you. And when he asked, would you come to hell with me? She replied, take me. They cruised on up to Mendocino and in the Redwoods made love for the first time. Blitzed on acid. Bobby dressed in a Confederate soldier uniform, complete with a sword. It's, I don't know. It, it just cracks me up for some reason. I could just see him in this Civil War uniform in my head. He says he felt he was returning from the Civil War and making love to all the women in the world at once. Which, that kind of sucks for Leslie. You know, I'm sure she was wishing he'd be thinking of her specifically, not all the women in the world. I mean, after all, she did say she'd go to hell for him and all. <laughs> they headed down to the server town of Santa Cruz, did a few dope deals to acquire a beat-up pickup truck, which they were then able to trade for an old army weapons truck, which they converted into a camper. They parked their new home alongside the railway tracks, eating whatever they could. Bobby says, We were gypsies, man. I got good at stealing food from people's yards. I stole the sheep that killed it, butchered it for us. We roasted it over a fire, a few fires over a few days, and full of lamb, we went on. And Bobby also said, the road just kept rolling south. And in a few days, they were climbing away from the coast and up into the hills of Topanga Canyon. One day, Bobby went to a shopping center looking for something to steal. And he ran into some crazy girls running around that he knew from his old buddy, Charlie Manson. Manson was a fellow musician and a holy man whose, quote, Head was totally turned into Scientology, end quote, just like Bobby. The girls said they were going back to Gary Hinman's house, and Leslie and Bobby went with them. Hinman was a hippie Buddhist who made a few bucks manufacturing mescaline from peyote plants. He lived on Canyon Road, and Bobby's buddy, Charlie Manson, stayed there sometimes. Hinman was working on getting his PhD in sociology from UCLA and was an active member of the Nichiren Shoshu, a non-political Buddhist sect headquartered in Santa Monica. Like Bobby and Charlie, Hinman was a musician and taught music at a school in Los Angeles while working on his degree. Though, of course, Bobby and Charlie saw that as Squaresville. Friends say Gary Hinman knew something about everything and was incredibly generous. They also say Manson and Hinman would rap about music for hours together, often butting heads, Manson telling him, Man, the Beatles confuse you with what they say. They trick you with distraction, Jack, with the beat. You get programmed from the front, programmed from the back. Music don't have time, man. Music is soul, and you can bring it in from the back. I can sing a song right now. When it's over, you forget the words, the music, but it stays in your infinite unconscious. Dig. A fabulous Manson impression, if I do say <laughs> so myself. Uh, Bobby and Leslie crashed at Hinman's house for a bit, but after a week or so of freeloading, they drifted out into the hills of Topanga, living in a teepee for a while with another of Bobby's many girlfriends, Kitty Lutzinger, who Bobby would soon get pregnant. They stayed in Topanga for a while, roaming the hills, Bobby being what he describes as a man of the mountains. Gypsy, another of the Manson girls, was there at the time, 
And Bobby and Gypsy ended up playing Native Americans in a softcore porn Western called Ramrodder by filmmaker Robert Aiken that was using the location as a set. The filmmakers really liked the homemade tents Bobby constructed by hand and all remarked how regal and authentic Bobby looked bare-chested before his tents with a hawk perched on his shoulder. They'd all exclaim that they never experienced anyone quite like him. There's a footage from this film shoot of Gypsy running around out there in the hills. We'll put a link in the show notes. For a while, Bobby, Leslie, Gypsy, Kitty, and another girl lived as husband and wives in a teepee. Like Charlie Manson, Bobby almost always had his own traveling harem. But Bobby grew restless and yearned to move on. He didn't want to head down to Sunset Strip, where everyone called him Bummer Bobby, and decided to visit his old friend and fellow musician, Charlie Manson. As he says... Ever since meeting Charlie Manson and feeling that kind of brotherhood between us, but all that fire and friction between us as well, it spelled something was going to go down. Bobby claims Charlie and he were destined to bring hell to Earth. So Bobby and Leslie cruise down to an old movie set in Horse Ranch. Charlie and his ever-expanding band of followers are now staying on called Spawn's Movie Ranch. The ranch, owned by an elderly blind man named George Spawn, was in the mountains near Chatsworth, about a mile west of Topanga Canyon Road, and had been the set for the old William S. Hart cowboy movies of the 1920s, but had fallen into disrepair and now eked out in existence, renting horses to tourists. One of the Manson girls says Leslie just drifted in one day along with some others, like they'd come up on a fluke, a joke. She went in the trailer with Charlie, and after that, she was part of us. Life on Spawn's ranch was a hippie paradise of sorts. They lived communally, sharing everything from food to clothing. There was plenty of sex and acid. Acid which may have been inadvertently supplied by the CIA's MK Ultra Mind Control Program through Charlie's parole officer. And if you want to hear more about that, go back and listen to episode number two of the show, Charlie Manson, Iron Cross, and Eagle Feather, where it gets all broken down. And Leslie, after being indoctrinated into the family by making love with Charlie high on LSD, during which he undoubtedly commanded her to envision he was her father, which he did with all the girls, well, Leslie fell into the life and rhythm of the family, becoming a tight member of the inner group. There were about 40 or so members of the family there, though many came and went, new ones showing up as old ones wandered away. But the core members of the group were... Mary Brunner, the first of the girls to follow Manson, who had been a librarian studying at University of California, Berkeley, when she met Charlie playing guitar on the street. She was the mother of Charlie's infant son, Michael Pooh Bear Manson, who Manson had delivered himself, using his teeth to sever the umbilical cord. Obviously, Mother Mary held an elevated status in the group. Another early member was sweet and impish Squeaky. Lynette from a grinning redhead whose main job was taking care of the elderly and blind owner of the ranch, George, basically living in his trailer, cooking and cleaning for the old man. It's said Charlie found her sitting on a curb crying after being kicked out of her house by her father. And he went to her and told her, I am the God of fuck. That line always, like, kills me. Catchy. Uh, there was quiet and brooding Sandy, Sandra Good, a pretty blonde with stunning blue eyes who was from a very rich family, her father a San Diego stockbroker. When she joined the family, she had $6,000 in stocks, which she cashed out and gave to Charlie. There was Sadie Mae Glutz, Susan Atkins, a wild and tough raven-haired ex-stripper, and Satanists, who'd led a life of crime long before meeting Charlie. Sadie could be surly and difficult, always trying to be the boss and one-up everyone, taking everything one step too far in order to prove herself. 
There was the incredibly beautiful and very young Oish, Ruth Ann Morehouse, whose father was a preacher who'd taken Charlie in only to have him schmooze him out of a piano and run away with his underage daughter. There was Patty, Patricia Krenwinkel, a slightly awkward and big bonedish boyish kind of girl who had once wanted to be a nun. Charlie had made her stand naked before a mirror, high on acid, whispering over and over to her that she was perfect and beautiful, after which she became fiercely and fanatically devoted to Charlie and always towed the family line. There was Gypsy, Catherine Scher, whom we mentioned earlier, a classically trained musician and violinist whose biological parents had died in a Nazi concentration camp. And Snake, Diane Lake, only 14 years old, whose parents were members of the famous Hog Farm Commune. Snake had been given to Charlie by Wavy Gravy himself because he didn't want, quote, jailbait on his commune. They named her Snake because of the way she'd squirm during sex. Then there were the men. Tex, Charles Watson, a burnt-out high school football hero from Texas, who became a sad, zombie-like clone of Charlie. Slim, Steve Krogan, who everyone called Scramblehead, which aptly suited his personality. He'd recently escaped Camarillo State Mental Hospital. Old Scramblehead had a wily and demented look to his eye, a creepy, crooked grin, and a long rap sheet with everything from robbery and grand theft auto to drugs, child molestation, and indecent exposure. There was Little Paul, another musician with elf-like good looks and a charming smile, who Charlie used to recruit new girls who found him just adorable. And Danny DiCarlo, a member of the outlaw motorcycle club, The Straight Satans. He was a fringe member of the family, Charlie kept him around because he was a great mechanic, tough as nails, and had an arsenal of guns and weapons. He was basically there for muscle, and he was the only one allowed to drink beer or eat meat. And of course, angelic Bobby Boussier, the only one who was regarded as an equal to Charlie. Charlie Manson himself was quite the character. Part ex-con, part hippie guru. The family would say, Charlie is love. When asked to explain this, they'd just respond, love is love. You can't define it. Small man, only five foot two, with an impish grin. Charlie was much older than the rest of the group. He was 34, while Leslie and most of the others were only teenagers. Charlie had a pet crow that would sit on his shoulder. He would strum his guitar and croon beautiful songs the young runaways and hippie freaks ate up, like, Your home is where you're happy. It's not where you're not free. Your home is where you can be what you are, because you were just born to be. And mystical songs like Eyes of a Dreamer, where he sang, can the world be as sad as it seems? Where are men's hopes? Where are men's dreams? In the eyes of a dreamer. Old Charlie Manson, or little Charlie, as they often called him, preached a zen-like deconstructing of the ego, a liberation of the soul, where the goal was to achieve a state of being in the moment, the eternal now. As Charlie wrote, and Leslie would later famously sing, in the halls of the Los Angeles courthouse. Always is always forever, as long as one is one. Inside yourself for your father, all is none, all is none, all is one. Charlie taught that humans were reflections of their parents and society, and one needed to break down those walls to be pure and part of the eternal now. For time itself was an illusion and didn't really exist. And no clocks or calendars were allowed. Only the eternal now. And in order to become one with the eternal now, they had to completely give up their old identity, go by a new name, 
and even give their driver's licenses to Charlie, which were kept in mass in a secure location. And any barrier or hang up built by parents, churches, schools or society had to be destroyed, especially sexual ones. Leslie would once be incredibly surprised to look up during an orgy and to see her beloved Bobby giving Charlie a blowjob. But that's the way it was. Anything and everything went. And if there was something you felt uncomfortable about, that had to be immediately addressed and destroyed. It's even said that Charlie would make the girls fillet the dogs, though the family adamantly denies this is true. Charlie bragged of having no father and being raised without a mother's love in prisons and institutions so that he hadn't been imprinted by his parents. He claimed in prison he had studied Scientology and rid himself of all of his hangups, reaching the state of clear. In Scientology, electrical meters are used during interview sessions to register any mental issues one might have. Any issue had to be addressed over and over until it no longer registered on the meter. Charlie said he'd reached such a state of nowness, breaking down each and every of his hangups and insecurities, that he'd become one with the eternal soul, just as Jesus and Buddha had done before him. He was in a clear state of being, and what people saw when they looked at him was just a reflection of themselves. He'd say, look up to me, you'll see God. Look down on me, you'll see the devil. But look me eye to eye, and you'll see yourself. There was no beginning and no ending to existence, just an eternal now. And there was also no good or evil either. Everything was acceptable as long as it was done with love in the heart, for in love there is no wrong. They were taught... Thinking is stinking. And to have no thought was to be pure. But they relished imagination, dressing up in costumes and acting out little dramas in the old movie sets of the crumbling Main Street, the Longhorn Saloon and Rock City Cafe, pretending they were magical creatures, wood elves and fairies, even convincing themselves that they were actual fairies and had real wings. The girls spent their days picking food from the dumpsters of grocery stores, sewing, cleaning, cooking, much like the middle-class mothers they had sought to escape. The men would work on cars, target practice, take care of the horses, shoveling manure and hauling bales of alfalfa. And at night, they would eat together as a family, Charlie ranting about becoming open to the eternal soul of the universe. Then they'd sing and dance as Bobby, Little Paul, and Charlie played guitar, then, often high on acid, as they danced about, playing a game initiated by Charlie, where they would mimic or mirror each other's movements, they'd slowly begin to peel off their clothing, and once completely naked, they'd fall into a great sex orgy, goal of which was for everyone to simultaneously orgasm together, something they were never ever able to pull off, much to Charlie's chagrin. Charlie would use this failing of a simultaneous group orgasm as a means of showing they hadn't reached the zen-like state of the coyote yet, and didn't, quote, have it together. From the very beginning, though, Leslie Van Houten had an elevated status. She was seen as Bobby's girl. She was given the cush job of caring for the children. Little Pooh Bear and Sadie's son, Zozo Zizo Zadfrak, Danny DeCarlos's son, Dennis, and Linda Kasabian's daughter, Tanya, among others. Charlie didn't want the children to be raised by or have much interaction with their biological mothers, who would imprint themselves on the children's psyche and give them all sorts of hang-ups. The children needed to be pure spirit from the very beginning. He'd often use Snake as the example of a pure spirit, though she was really just a sad and LSD-burned child, lonely and abandoned. When she'd later get arrested in Death Valley, she'd say she'd been fucked to death. She was only 14 years old. Man. Uh, she's got a, a, a great book out, by the way, 
Table. Yeah, I read it a couple of years ago when it came out. It was yeah. good. Uh, there was a definite and palpable darkness to the family. Death was seen as a beautiful thing, a returning to the void. And they weren't afraid to defend themselves or use violence. Charlie equated pacifism as a weakness and explained that they weren't hippies. They were slippies. Charlie was known to slap the girls if they did something that displeased him, even beat them, claiming it was secretly what the girl wanted because of how she had been imprinted by her father. And in some zen-like way, he was using violence to awaken her to this and tear down the walls society had imposed in her soul, ridding the layers of defense mechanisms so that the infinite could shine through. What Charlie didn't tell the girls was that he had a long history of being a pimp. Many of the federal charges laid on him over the years had been for taking girls across state lines for prostitution. And Charlie had studied how to treat a, quote, stable of working girls, demeaning them into slaves and giving them just enough love and attention to make them loyal. And he treated the women of the family as prostitutes, offering their services to anyone he wanted in his favor, such as the straight Satan's motorcycle gang and anyone he thought might help get him a record contract. And speaking of darkness, something had happened. Something whispered about and told in back caves and shadows, but never brought up openly. Charlie had killed a man, a black man, a man they knew only as lots of papa. The story went, after Tex had ripped the guy off in a pot deal, lots of papa had held a girl named Rosina Croner captive. Rosina was a girlfriend of sorts of Texas. Lots of papa called the ranch, threatening to kill or maim the hysterical girl if he didn't get his money back. So Charlie went to defuse the situation, but in freeing the captive girl, ended up shooting lots of papa. Charlie had killed a man for the family. The infinite soul of the universe called for that man to have changes, and it happened. But lots of papa was a member of the Black Panthers, a militant African-American group who were bound to seek revenge on the family. In reality, the guy wasn't a Black Panther at all, just a drug dealer named Bernard Crow. And he wasn't dead, though Charlie had shot him in the gut when his hippy-trippy peace and love vibes failed to get the guy to release the girl. But it appears Charlie did sincerely think the guy was both dead and affiliated with the Black Panthers, as did the rest of the family. Later, in jail, Charlie would pass him in the hall, utterly shocked and surprised to see him alive, regaining his composure enough to tell him, hey, sorry, man, I had to do what I had to do, but you know how it is. Growing up in jails and juvenile detention halls, Charlie wasn't just misogynistic, but racist as well. And it was a, a weird racism, a type of separatism. He considered blacks lower than whites and was vehemently against biracial love affairs, but he claimed to, quote, love the black man, end quote. And having a deep belief in karma, he did feel the plight of African-Americans, the injustice they'd lived through. And he thought their time was coming, karmically speaking. Oh, oh, the crazy views of Charlie Manson. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and this is like a lot of this is only the tip of the iceberg. It's it's yeah. so crazy. I mean, we're not going to even get into Scientology and, and yeah. <laughs> everything else. So, so much. This is Leslie's story. <laughs> yes, indeed. Charlie had uh, hung out with all kinds of black folks in prison, from Muslims to hardcore criminals, pimps and outlaws. Seeing the riots and turmoil of the late 60s, he felt the black man was rising up, just like that song Blackbird by the Beatles, where they say, Blackbird rise. We're getting a, a lot of singing going in this episode. It's great. It's fantastic. I love it. Uh, and Charlie felt that karma was on the side of the African-Americans. He saw uh, an inevitable race war erupting, envisioning it as the apocalypse prophesied in the Book of Revelations. He called it Helter Skelter, after the song by the Beatles. 
The family saw the Beatles as modern prophets, especially the White Album, and saw themselves in many of their songs. An LSD fever dream of biblical references and family lore all intermingled into a bizarre tapestry of rock and roll. Fearing an attack from the Black Panthers, the family grew into a state of paranoia and fear. But Charlie had long preached how fear was a state of purity. To Charlie, the more fear you have, the more awareness, hence the more love. He taught what he called the way of the coyote, a state of constant fear and awareness that put one in the ultimate state of nowness. He said the coyote was constantly aware and filled with fear, and they should all emulate the coyote. In order to learn to control their fear, they begin to go on creepy crawling missions. Creepy crawling is just basically breaking into a nice upper middle class house and doing silly stuff like rearranging the furniture to freak the square pigs out. But the real reason was to learn to deal with your own fear. Charlie taught the entire substance of expanded consciousness was fear. Quote, the infinite plane of fear unto infinity, end quote. Fear brought one to the infinite now through awareness, as could be seen in the coyote, and creepy crawling was like walking on waves of fear. During these Malibu living room fear surfs, Charlie would tell them to do the unexpected, man. No sense, make sense. You won't get caught if you ain't got thought in your head. Big. Sometimes they'd steal odd items like one golfing shoe. Sometimes, to really ride the waves of fear, they'd stand before the bed of the occupants, watching them sleep, just standing there, watching, hovering over the sleeping squares for as long as they could. Ooh, it is so creepy. Can you imagine yeah. some fucking acid head? Fucking crazy hippie with a Bowie knife standing over you while you're sleeping, man. No, no. <laughs> I I couldn't sleep all night last night because there was a moth in my room. <laughs> <laughs> if I woke up to find a deranged drug addict in my house, I'd be moving. At some point, all the girls began wearing black capes and Squeaky started dyeing their clothes black in a pot on the Spawn Ranch kitchen. They started thinking of themselves as witches, and when new member Linda Kasabian joined them, she changed her name to Yana the Witch. Charlie got them all buck knives and taught them how to use them, how to stab and slice, how to cut the corroded arteries when slicing a neck open. Charlie also began to preach about the desert. The desert was a metaphor for so many things to him. For one, it was land no one wanted. Land that was considered garbage. The concept of trash and garbage was huge for Charlie and the family, claiming the things no one wanted. One of his catchiest tunes is Garbage Dump, the family all singing together. Oh, oh garbage dump. Oh, garbage dump. Why are you called a garbage dump? Oh, garbage dump, oh, garbage dump. Why are you called a garbage dump? You could feed the world with my garbage dump. You could feed the world with my garbage dump. You could feed the world with my garbage dump. That sums, that sums it up, up in one big lump. <laughs> and of course, the family lived off garbage, food they'd find dumpster diving behind grocery stores. And even deeper than that, Charlie considered his ragtag band of followers garbage themselves, saying he'd gone out and found all these lost souls on the side of the road where their parents had thrown them away, and he'd collected them. He even called them the garbage people, saying... Where does the garbage go? As we have tin cans and garbage alongside the road, oil slicks in the water. So you have people, and we are the garbage people. The desert was a place no one wanted, a place people saw as a wasteland. But Charlie claimed it was a paradise. 
that there was plenty of water if you knew where to look. And who reigned in the desert? The coyote, of course, the ultimate symbol of awareness, survival, and purity. They began to make excursions into Death Valley to a place called Guler Wash, north of Shoshone, scouting for locations to set up a compound. Charlie would wander out for days, alone sometimes, and claims once when he was lost, coyotes led him back to their camp. Family members also claim he once picked up a dead bird and breathed life into it, tossing it now alive to the air where it beat its wings and flew off. He was said to befriend rattlesnakes in the desert and play with them. Other family members claim that once, when they were driving their school bus through the ravines and gullies of Death Valley to get to the Barker Ranch, where they'd gotten permission to squat by plying the owner with gold Beach Boys records, which they'd stolen from Beach Boy drummer Dennis Wilson, the bus got stuck with some boulders, and Charlie levitated it up and over them to the ranch. Later... Investigators would be stunned to see the school bus there and wonder just how in the hell they were able to get it there. And I may be wrong, but I do believe that that bus, or pieces of it at least, is still there to this day. A buddy of mine once tried to convince me to go find it with him, but I wasn't in the mood at the time to be tromping through Death Valley. Yeah, that sounds like a fool's errand, if you ask me. (laughs) Well, we were in San Diego driving north. and I mean, he was like, Adam, he's like, we got to do it, Maddie. We got to go to Death Valley and find a school bus. I'm like, bro, I don't know, man. It's awful Uh, hot there. (laughs) It was 135 degrees there the other day. Yeah, no, thank you. No, thank you. So in preparation for their move to the desert and the possible coming Armageddon, when race wars would destroy the cities which honestly didn't seem that far from the realm of imagination at the time, with riots and cities burning across the country after the assassination of Martin Luther King, they began to steal Volkswagen bugs and convert them into dune buggies and hoard massive amounts of gasoline and rations. Charlie had a large map showing all the fire roads in and out of Los Angeles, snaking out into the mountains and desert, and he'd ride out and explore them, taking bolt cutters that could open any locked gates along the way. But even with the paranoia of the Black Panthers, the creepy crawling and scouting of Death Valley, it was still a bit of innocent fun to life on Spawn's ranch. It was like a big game of pretend whizzing about in those dune buggies, laying lines, a telephone cable they could communicate on, stashing cans of gasoline and food. There were a lot of fun times. For a while, they'd all hung out with Beach Boys drummer Dennis Wilson in his mansion, a wild and extravagant time. They'd cut up his curtains and make hippie outfits out of them, and he'd funded drug-filled orgies by his swimming pool. Charlie had even written a song for the Beach Boys, Cease to Exist, which they recorded and put on an album, though they'd changed the name to Never Learn Not to Love and hadn't credited him, which drove him mad with anger. But it looked like Charlie was going to get a recording contract of his own, as Dennis had hooked him up with recording legend Terry Melcher, who had produced The Birds, among others. But that deal somehow fell through, leaving Charlie feeling slighted. He'd even sent Leslie to Terry's house up on Cielo Drive to try to talk to him, schmooze him, even seduce him. Whatever it would take to get him to record Charlie, but he refused to talk to her. And Dennis Wilson had just upped and moved, not telling anyone he was leaving or where he went. As the good times and hopeful dreams turned to resentment and anger, and free love turned to a death trip, one day... Everything would completely fall apart in a way that could never be fixed again. Remember that Buddhist musician, Gary Hinman, that Charlie used to hang out with, living on his sofa for a while with the girls? Recall he made mescaline tablets out of peyote? Well, Charlie arranged a deal with some bikers who bought a whole shitload of the pills. We used to call them microdots back in the day. Anyway, a couple of the bikers ate them, and they made them violently sick, so they say. And they threw all the pills away, and now we're demanding their money back. So Charlie called Gary, explaining the situation. Gary said, fine, bring me the pills. I'll give you the money back. 
But the bikers had apparently thrown the pills away. And Gary stubbornly refused to give up any money unless he got the pills back, throwing Charlie into a rage. Manson told Gary he couldn't be responsible for the karma he was going to incur. Also, there was a rumor circulating that Gary had recently inherited $20,000, and now Charlie wanted that, too. So he sent Bobby, Sadie, and Mother Mary to Gary's house to get the money, by any means necessary. Details are murky, but it appears Leslie was there at Gary's house in the very beginning of this drama, but left at some point. In other accounts, she's not there at all. Regardless, Bobby, the love of Leslie's life, was the ringleader and demanded money from Gary. And when Gary refused, Bobby punched him in the face so hard that he knocked a tooth out. Bobby then pulled a gun on Gary and there was a scuffle. Bobby fired the gun as a warning, then handed it off to Sadie as Gary and him fought. But somehow, in the melee, Gary was able to get his hands on the gun, turning it on Bobby, Sadie, and Mary. But instead of calling the police or just ordering them out of the house, the Buddhist hippie, with tears in his eyes, handed the weapon back to Bobby, saying, I just don't believe in violence, man. You take it. Just go. Leave me alone. Hinman then went and laid down on the couch. Bobby called Charlie at Spawn Ranch and said it was no use. There'd been a fight. The gun had been fired. Gary had lost a tooth, but he wasn't giving up the money. Charlie angrily said he'd come over and take care of the situation. At midnight, Charlie showed up with a sword in his hand, trembling with rage and anger. He stormed right up to Gary and swung the sword into his face. The sword slammed into the left side of Gary's head, slicing his ear in half and gouging open his jaw. Charlie then looked to Bobby and told him, That's how a man handles the situation. Now get the damn money, no matter what it takes. Dig. Then Charlie stalked out of the house. What followed was days of torture. Bobby, Sadie, and Mary tied him in up, constantly trying to coax the money out of him. They gave him some wine, and Sadie sewed up his ear with some dental floss. They ransacked the house, pestering Hinman for days to tell them where the money was, finally convincing Gary to write over the pink slips of his cars to them. But Hinman, he claimed there was no money, that they didn't know what they were talking about. They stole his beloved bagpipes. And at one point, a couple of him and his friends called, asking where he was. And Sadie, in an English accent, <laughs> she told him that he was in Colorado at his parents' house and had been in a car accident. Gary's friend Dave showed up to the house. And Sadie wouldn't let him in. The days and hours ticking by, the three getting nowhere with the stubborn Buddhist. What exactly happened next is, like many, many things involving the Manson family, a sort of mystery with various versions. In one version, Gary swears vengeance on the family and says he's going to the cops and going to break the family up, which sealed his fate. In another, Gary just starts screaming uncontrollably, and they panicked in their efforts to shut him up. Some even say Manson called on the phone and ordered his death. But either way, Gary Hinman was stabbed twice in the chest, a murder most often attributed to Bobby, who eventually confesses to the crime, but sometimes is said to have been committed by crazy Sadie, who, by her own admission, loved to kill and saw the act of stabbing as sexual, the knife going in and out of the body like a penis and bringing the ultimate orgasm, death. As he died, they put him on the floor of the living room, and fashioned a Buddhist shrine above him. They gave him his prayer beads, and he chanted, Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, until he slipped into unconsciousness and bled out. In order to divert blame, Bobby, Sadie, and Mary drew cat paws on the wall in blood and wrote Political Piggy, hoping the cops would think it's the Black Panthers who committed the crime. The cops do not think this. They assume it was a drug deal gone bad, which it basically was. 
And a few days later, cops find Bobby sleeping on the side of the road in Gary's stolen Fiat in San Luis Obispo. The murder weapon right there in the wheel well. And he's arrested for first degree murder and hauled off to jail. They'd also find his fingerprint at the murder scene as well. Leslie is, of course, devastated. Bobby was the one she'd always been in love with. He was her angel, her Cupid. She'd vowed to go to hell itself to be with him. Even Charlie called her Bobby's girl. The rest of the girls were devastated as well. Everyone loved Bobby. Who exactly came up with the copycat plan is unknown. Charlie claims the girls came to him with the idea of murdering more people, making it look like the Black Panthers had done it. And when the cops realized more murders were happening, they released Bobby. Apparently, one of the girls had seen it done in a movie where it had worked perfect. Charlie claims he was originally adamant against it, saying these crazy kids are going to get him thrown in jail again. But the girls begged him, telling him to think of the love, telling him that love is one and in love there is no wrong. And they needed to free their brother. And he finally reluctantly agreed, telling them, all right, but what you do is on your heads, not mine. Understand? It was an insane plan at best, especially considering Bobby had the murder weapon on him when he was arrested. But remember, not only were the family dropping acid constantly, they were also digging up belladonna and making tea from it. Tex Watson even once munching a root like a carrot and going into a state of pure psychosis for days. LSD is a psychedelic, and the walls will wiggle, things will breathe. But it is not a full-on hallucinogen like belladonna, which will make you see things that aren't there at all. So they're all out of their minds, and a plan is formed. Murder some rich pigs, make it look just like the Hinman murder, pin it on the Black Panthers. Then when Bobby gets released, they all go to Death Valley and wait out the coming apocalypse. Totally makes perfect sense. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? With all the creepy crawling and training with knives, it seemed an inevitable end. Charlie also saw it as a means of instilling fear into the establishment and speeding up the inevitable helter-skelter. So on the night of August 8th, 1969, Charlie Manson called his most loyal soldiers, Tex Watson, Patricia Kenwinkle, and Susan Atkins. Now remember, Charlie had shot lots of Papa for Tex. So as far as he was concerned, Tex Watson owed him a life. And wild and crazy Sadie, she was always up for anything and had been arrested for the attempted murder of a police officer before she even met Charlie. As for Patty, Charlie was the only one who made her feel truly beautiful. To her, he was Jesus, and she'd do anything for him. He also rounded up Linda Kasabian, or Yana the Witch, as she was simply the only one with a legitimate driver's license. Charlie told them to make the murders, quote, look witchy. And when Tex asked where they should go, Charlie just said, you know, one of those rich pig neighborhoods, like where record producer Terry Melcher used to live. The unimaginative Tex took this literally and went to the exact house Melcher had lived in, now being rented by filmmaker Roman Polanski and his eight-month pregnant wife, the movie star Sharon Tate. How much Leslie was involved in the planning or asking Charlie's permission to pull this crazy caper? We don't know. We know she deeply loved Bobby, was willing to go to hell for him. But she wasn't involved that first night when five innocent people were brutally murdered, as well as an unborn eight-month-old baby. When exactly Leslie became aware of what had happened is unknown as well, though she must have known something when, the next day, Sadie demanded they watch the news and giggled uncontrollably when the brutal and shocking murders were covered. And Leslie must have been somewhat shocked or surprised to see the murders had happened in the exact house Charlie had once sent her to, to try to convince Melcher to give Charlie a recording contract. But the next evening, when Charlie gathered a group of loyalists for another night of murder and mayhem, 
Leslie was one of those summoned. He also brought Tex, Sadie, Clem, Katie, and Linda, instructing them to put on dark clothing, gather their knives, and get ready to kill some pigs. They piled into the yellow and white 59 Ford, Charlie driving with Linda and Clem in the front seat. Leslie sat on Tex's lap in the back with Katie and Sadie. As they drove, looking for the perfect house, Charlie admonished Tex, Sadie, Patty, and Linda, or Yana the Witch, for letting the scene the night before turn into such chaos. Tonight, he'd show them how it was done, how to keep their victims calm. After driving aimlessly for hours, Charlie had Linda, who, remember, had the only driver's license in the group, get behind the wheel and began to instruct her where to go. They drove down Sunset Boulevard, past the Sunset Strip and the sea of billboards, promoting bands like The Doors, Jefferson Airplane, and The Grateful Dead, hippie bands who had signed recording contracts and made it, while Charlie was still living in a back shack, sleeping on a bare mattress and eating garbage. Eventually, they arrived at the Los Feliz district just south of Gifford Park and pulled to a stop in front of a house their friend Harold True had once lived in and they'd partied in, drinking peyote punch. They asked Charlie, you're not going to do that house, are you? Charlie said, no, the house next door. The house next door was the residence of Lino and Rosemary La Bianca, a straight upper middle class family. Lino managed a chain of grocery stores, and Rosemary was the co-owner of a successful dress and gift shop called Boutique Carriage. Charlie slipped from the car and slunk up to the house, while Leslie shared a Pall Mall with the other family members. Before the cigarette was even finished, Wiley Charlie was back. Charlie pulled Leslie, Tex, and Katie from the car and explained there were two people in the house and that he had tied them up. He told them not to instill fear in them or excite them, but just kill them, make it gruesome, then hitchhike back to the ranch. Then Charlie got in the car and drove away, leaving Leslie standing there in the dark with Tex and Katie. Leslie, Tex, and Katie then headed into the house, which Charlie had left unlocked for them, and discovered Lino and Rosemary LaBianca in the living room, tied back to back with leather thongs. Tex and Katie then went into the kitchen to look for weapons, selecting a white-handled 10-inch bi-tined carving fork and an 8-inch serrated wood-handled knife. While Leslie pulled down the shades so no one could see in, Katie and Leslie untied Rosemary and brought her to the bedroom, laying her face down on the bed. She was wearing a short nightgown and a robe. They removed a pillowcase from a pillow and placed it over her head, then unplugged a lamp and wrapped the cord around her neck, nodding it, telling her everything was going to be okay, not to worry, they weren't going to hurt her. When suddenly the blood-curdling screams of Lino erupted from the other room as Tex began to violently stab him to death. Rosemary screamed. What are you doing to my husband? And began to struggle, falling to the floor and pulling the lamp down with her. As Leslie held her, Katie began to stab Rosemary, severing her spine and paralyzing her. Tex then burst into the room and began to stab her as well. 41 times altogether in the back. As this was going on, Leslie backed away watching the horrific murder of Rosemary LaBianca unfurl. What went on in Leslie's head watching this scene of utter carnage and cruelty, we, of course, can never know. Did Leslie feel any remorse, revulsion, or horror as Tex then pulled Rosemary's nightgown and robe up over her head and shoulders, exposing her bare back and buttocks? Was that why she quietly backed away and didn't participate? We don't know. But Tex and Katie were pissed that Leslie wasn't participating. Go on, Tex admonished, holding the bloody knife out to Leslie. 
stab her. Rosemary was already obviously dead, lying there face down in a puddle of blood and gore. Leslie shook her head no, and Katie screamed at her, you have to stab her too. Do it. Tex chiming in again. Do it. Do it. Do it. So Leslie hesitantly took the knife and made a small stab at the buttocks of the dead woman. But Tex and Katie screamed at her. Again. Do it again. And Leslie stabbed again. And again. Finally, unleashing a flurry of stabs into the dead woman's buttocks. Sixteen in all. Later, Leslie would say, the more she stabbed, the better it felt. And would one day write poems about it in prison. Now it was time to leave a sign. Tex carved a series of overlapping X's into Leno's belly, which formed the word war, then stuck the knife into his neck. Katie stuck the carving fork into his gut, fascinated by the way it stuck there, giving it a flick and watching as it wobbled back and forth. A knife in the throat and a fork in the gut just like the Beatles' song, Piggies. You can see them out for dinner with their piggy wives, clutching forks and knives to eat their bacon. As Tex and Katie performed these atrocities on the bodies, Leslie made herself busy wiping the scene down of fingerprints, lingering to wipe over and over and over, as Tex then wrote, Death to Pigs in blood on the wall facing the front door, and rise above a painting. On the refrigerator, Katie scrawled Helter Skelter in blood, but misspelled Helter as Healter, perhaps a psychological slip wishing to heal. But perhaps she was just an illiterate acid head, dropout dummy. Maybe both. Three of them then took a shower together and changed into fresh clothes. They fed the dogs who had watched silently through the entire massacre, patting them on the head. Then they ate some watermelon from the refrigerator and drank some chocolate milk before leaving the house, taking the carton of chocolate milk with them. They threw the clothing into a garbage can a few blocks away, walked to the Golden State Freeway, and hitchhiked back to the ranch. And that's where we're going to leave it for today. But be sure to join us next week for the conclusion of our Leslie Van Houten story, as the family makes the big move to Death Valley to wait out Armageddon, and the law begins to slowly put together the pieces of murder and mayhem, leading to the trial of the century. But since we're ending with the LaBianca murders, for all you conspiracy theorists out there screaming into the sky about Lino LaBianca, yes, he did have a lot of connections to the mafia and gambling. And yes, his phone was being tapped at the time of the murders by the police. And yes, Charlie Manson did one time say in an interview that he went into the house and demanded a little black ledger book from Lino and received it before he left and later gave that book to whomever had sent him to commit the murder. But this episode isn't about all these crazy conspiracy theories, whether they're true or not. It's about the life and times of Leslie Van Houten and more or less told through her eyes which is also why we didn't get into any of the details about the Tate murders, because Leslie simply wasn't there. But so many rumors and strange coincidences abound in this case, from how Mrs. LaBianca's first name was Rosemary and Sharon Tate's husband, Roman Polanski, had recently released the film Rosemary's Baby about a cult of murdering Satanists, and that Susan Atkins, a.k.a. Sadie Meg, who murdered Polanski's wife, had been involved with the Church of Satan before she joined the family, and how the murders were supposedly inspired by a song by John Lennon of the Beatles, and John Lennon was murdered at the hotel the movie Rosemary's Baby was shot in, the Dakota, a hotel that is supposedly haunted. There's just so many conspiracy theories. 
these weird coincidences like the haunted mansion at disneyland not too far away opening up the same day as the tate murders we're not going to even start with the church of the process and crazy offshoot of the church of satan with ties to the family or get into scientology there's just so i mean these god it's what makes it so legendary and fascinating you can just keep going down all these rabbit holes constantly i know it i know it and i know we're not technically at the end of leslie's story yet but um you know it's just been so crazy to see that she's out now and just you know i'm just so curious as to what her next steps are and what she's doing she was in prison for so long and we'll get into it but she's like really really good friends with john waters now it's crazy yeah, she says she just wants to uh, just live a quiet, normal life and put it all behind her and forget it all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and maybe one day we'll do another show solely about the many unexplained and weird elements of the case. You know, not just from Leslie's point of view, but, you know, just all, all around. It'll be fun. But for now, thank you so much for listening, dear listeners and fellow freaks. And please be sure to join us next week for the conclusion of the story of Leslie Van Houten. And hey, we want to hear from you. You got a case we think we should cover? Did we get something wrong? I know we probably mispronounced a lot of words today. Or do you just want to say hi? Drop us a line at MurderCoasterPodcast at gmail.com. That's MurderCoasterPodcast at gmail.com. No sense makes sense, and in love, there is no wrong. <laughs>